Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand that made an impact on you as a young kid? Oh, a super cheesy common answer, I guess. But it was the Apple IIc that I got when I was in uh, seventh grade. Transformed everything for me. I've never touched a computer before, and it set me off down a a path of of interest in tech and uh, what tech could do and and be. And it it really sort of was the seed for me that that, uh, turned me into an engineer and made me curious. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today in this special episode of the CMO podcast, my guest is Scott Rosenberg, Senior VP and General Manager of the Platform Business at Roku, the most popular manufacturer of set-top boxes and TV operating systems. Scott has been at Roku nine years and now oversees all content, services, and advertising for this red-hot company. Roku currently has a market cap of almost $54 billion, its highest ever. And if that's not enough, in January, Roku acquired Quibi, the short-form mobile video platform founded by Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitten. Scott is one well-educated leader with a computer science degree from Princeton, a Fulbright Fellow to Japan, and two master's degrees from MIT. He's a super nice guy with a clear point of view on where creativity, TV, and advertising are headed. We recorded this episode before a live Zoom audience of six CMOs, and our flow will be as follows. I will interview Scott for about 30 minutes, and then we will open up the dialogue to the CMOs in the room. This is my conversation with Scott Rosenberg and six really interesting CMOs. Welcome to the CMO Podcast. Thank you for being with us for this novel podcast where we're going to chat and then bring uh, our distinguished roundtable into it. You are steeped in entertainment and advertising more than most people on this planet. So we want to know up front, big question, what are you watching these days? Oh, (laughs) well, you know... uh, I got a lot of I got to watch a lot of television for my job, and I do. Uh, let's see. Right now, I'm watching Your Honor uh, with Brian Cranston on Showtime. Great show, great actor. Uh, I watched uh, with my wife The Undoing uh, recently with Nicole Kidman and uh, Hugh Grant. A show that I really liked and I did not expect to like, but was a particularly positive show in this time was uh, Ted Lasso with Jason Sudeikis on Apple TV Plus. I mean, it's just a show that, uh, you know, you want to not like if you're a cynic like me, but uh, it's a really a, a feel-good show and just in- incredibly well done. Well, you, you didn't mention anything geeky with your three degrees. I would think you're you're watching something geeky. Oh, I, I got a lot. Well, I got a lot of geekiness in my viewing habits, too. I'm watching uh, WandaVision with my 12-year-old on Disney+. Plus. Um, that's, uh, you know, sci- sci-fi uh, carries a lot of time in this household. Yeah. Well, I'm a Roku yeah. customer and I'm just finishing Flight Attendant. Talk about talk about you feel like your life's very in control when you watch that show. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. It's on my to-do list. Okay, now I want to set the stage for our discussion about where it's all going in consumer engagement, streaming, advertising, etc. So I want you to first talk about in the last year, how are you, Scott, as a leader, and how is Roku different? from this time last year when we were still getting together and traveling and being in person and going to restaurants? How are you, how are you and Roku different? Yeah, great question. Well, first, I'm grateful to be at a company that's, that's doing well, that is about entertainment and providing news and comfort to consumers at a really tough time. Uh, I feel fortunate every day to be able to go do this job 
And I think all of us at Roku and in this side of the business, the TV business, are conscious of the challenges that so many Americans face right now. Job loss, economic insecurity, health uh, issues. Um, you know, it, it's a challenging time. I would say that the impact for us as a company has been, um, you know, mixed. We're quite productive, but we're a, we're, we were already a very digital a company that was comfortable moving to a remote uh, work situation. Mm -hmm. But of course, we do have a lot of staff in cities, New York, LA, Boston, uh, folks who move to a city to participate in all that a city has to offer. Uh, and that's a challenging time to, you know, to, to, to be in your studio apartment, not going to the office, not going to restaurants and bars. And of course, we've got staff with young children who are at home. Um, you know, all in all, I think we've we've weathered it quite well, and uh, and as a company, we've learned how to be productive even while remote, and we've taken some important lessons about how to be productive that we'll take back with us as we head back into the office when the pandemic's over. You didn't mention Quibi, which obviously is one way the company's different from this time last year. You know, last month you announced the acquisition of Quibi. You know the famous company. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that up front. What about your vision for Roku made that a good fit? And I know it's early days. You've only had the company for a few weeks, but yeah. speak a bit about that. That's one obvious way you're different. Yeah. Well, a little bit of background on, on how Roku works for, for your listeners, for folks who uh, may not have a Roku, God forbid. Uh, you know, on Roku, it's uh, primarily an app based platform you download what we call a channel or an app and you you watch it and we've got you know well over 14,000 apps on the platform but we also have a service called the Roku channel where we directly host content for our consumers and that's important uh, for a couple of reasons from a consumer perspective it's it's heavily an ad supported service and so it's a great place to go enjoy free content but it's also an important outlet for content owners content owners who may not be building a direct-to-consumer app of their own. Uh, as we've grown, as the Roku channel has grown, our ability to secure bigger and better and, and more diverse content for the Roku channel has grown. Uh, Quibi was an opportunistic move on our part, really an awesome uh, lineup of content, 75 shows, hundreds of hours, 10 Emmy nominations, uh, two wins for uh, Free Rayshawn, uh, 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 one of the shows by Lawrence Fishburne. Um, so it's just a great pocket of content. It didn't do well in the original form that it was intended. And I think that's a function of a number of things, uh, when it launched, how it launched. But but Katzenberg and, and team at Quibi did an amazing job, produced great content. And so for us, it was a unique opportunity to bring that content to Roku users in an ad-supported fashion. I mean, knowing you the way I do, when I saw that, I thought, aha, you know, makes sense. I was surprised, but it makes sense. Yeah, well, we've really grown the the collection within the Roku channel. It's also a destination where content owners who may have an app on Roku are also putting content. So getting onto Roku and reaching users is not a mutually exclusive option between building an app or or syndicating content into the Roku channel. You take somebody like uh, NBCU Peacock, of course they have their newly launched Peacock service, but then we have NBC News, the, the news service as a channel offering within the Roku channel. So there's a lot of that going on. And I think it's a, an interesting indicator of how the streaming market is gonna develop over the next couple of years. Now it's still early 2021 and there's lots of lists out there where it's all going. TikTok has theirs, Pinterest has theirs, Wall Street Journal, everyone has it. So I don't want to do that today. What I do want to do is jump ahead a few years and let's say 2025. So could, with your background, could you share with us your projection of what that will look like? in streaming, in content, in entertainment, in advertising. And when you and I were speaking a few weeks back, you talked about all television and all TV ads will be streamed. This is going to be a win-win-win for everyone. So I'd like you to riff on that a bit, Scott. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, you know, first of all, uh, we're already in a place in the States, in the U.S. market, where about a third of U.S. households have cut the cord. They're no longer subscribed to a traditional pay TV package. Uh, 
And among adults 18 to 34, more than half a TV time is now streamed versus being watched over a pay TV package. By 2025, I think it's pretty clear that the majority of households will be uh, cord cutters, and it could be a super majority, but, but uh, we see that pace really picking up. I mean, if you just look at TV ratings, TV ratings have been declining by double digits for many years now. So I, that, that seems to me a certainty to play out over the next couple of years. We also saw during 2020 really interesting moves by Disney, by Warner Media with regards to their theatrical strategy, right? We saw Disney do day and date launches of uh, titles like Mulan. Uh, HBO Max has announced that they're going to do 17 theatrical titles as part of the HBO Max subscription. So there's clearly very intentioned experimentation with simultaneous release of big titles, big theatrical titles to the theater and to streaming services at the same time. I think it remains to be seen when the pandemic's over, whether whether we snap back to windowing, where stuff hits the theater first and then comes to home. But uh, I think that's also a, a dynamic that um, that is here to stay. Consumers have been exposed to the idea that they could get a day and date uh, release of a great title in their comfortable home, and they're going to expect it more and more. So I, I think that'll be a, a big trend. And then the last thing I'd call out is... Uh, you know, when, when streaming got started, many folks in the industry worried about the prospect of ad, the ad-supported business model. Uh, you know, would, would all TV viewing become a Netflix ad-free experience? It's clear if you look at the growth of ad-supported viewing on the Roku platform, if you look at the business models of the services that have been launched over the last 18 months, whether that's uh, uh, Discovery Plus or Peacock or HBO Max, that ad-supported viewing is going to continue to play an incredibly important role in the TV business model, even as it transitions to streaming. And I think that that's, uh, that's an important indicator for, for CMOs going forward, that, that while TV, investing in TV and reaching TV audiences is going to change, it's still going to be the biggest, baddest uh, you know, branding and now digital vehicle available to us. Could you speak a little bit more about advertising itself, Scott? I mean, do you think it's going to be less ad, ad breaks, uh, longer form advertising, better advertising? So as we go through this shift in how we think about content as consumers, as people, how do you see advertising evolving? Well, uh, I'm definitely a big ad tech nerd. And the thing that excites me the most about what's happening in the TV business is it's it's really fusing the strengths of traditional TV advertising, that sight, sound, and motion of a of a full screen ad on your 65-inch television in your living room, now joined together with all of the digital back end that marketers have come to expect from all their other media. So better targeting, better measurement, the ability to tie out and add exposure to a store visit or a product purchase. I think the most exciting thing about what's transpiring in the TV ad business is that uniquely TV, courtesy of streaming, is going to be a full funnel media. It's going to retain that incredibly powerful top funnel branding capability even while it picks up the, the mid and bottom funnel capabilities of digital. And that's pretty unique if you think about it. Most social media, most marketers regard as, as you know, bottom funnel performance media, not very powerful branding media. And TV traditionally has been a branding media, but lacked the, the credentials to really prove uh, lift of digital media. With streaming, we get both. And I think it's a really exciting transformation for the industry. You know, I know people hate this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You work with so many clients. Who do you think is leveraging your platform very creatively now in terms of anticipating some of these trends you're talking about? Well, uh, you know, the amazing thing about working in the ad industry is that it's there's so many different kinds of clients to work with and everybody's in a different place in terms of either their evolution in terms of how they invest and and their strategy and tactics. So. Um, you know, we, for example, one of our successes at Roku has been to offer marketers the ability to buy streaming media 
while still using traditional Nielsen demographic currency. And that, that might not seem like a big step to many, but it's actually a very helpful bridge from the mainland of traditional TV to the uh, growing island of streaming. Uh, you know, I would say the, as clients get more advanced, and again, depending on their tactics, they're taking advantage of the, the, the identity and the data that we have to be more focused uh, in, in how they uh, reach users. Um, because we're a digital platform, we can do attribution natively. So we've got lots of campaigns active at any point in time where we're uh, measuring in-store sales lift or, or store traffic, uh, website visits in relationship to ad exposure. Um, but I think the most exciting thing, maybe going back to your the essence of your question, is we all in this business have to think beyond the 30, beyond the traditional 30-second spot. We are working with a consumer who's much more highly empowered, who has more ability than ever to flip channels, uh, even on their Roku device to flip to another channel that doesn't have ads. And so almost certainly, I believe, ad loads are going to come down. Most of the ad support services you've seen have announced that they're going to shrink ad loads to half or less. Uh, we're already doing that on the Roku channel. Ads have got to get more respectful and relevant. Um, you know, whatever, whatever your feeling is around targeting, it's important to put a, a relevant ad in front of the consumer, not just because it's got better ROI for you, but because the consumer wants it to be relevant. And the most innovative marketers are, are looking past that 30 second spot and working with us to try and find uh, ways beyond the traditional spot. So examples of executions we're doing on the platform are things like pause ads. So we did a you know, pause ad uh, with uh, Charmin, for example, where you, you know, you go into pause and it's a very subtle ad in, in the upper corner. Um, limited interruption, uh, pre-show sponsorship messages, almost a, a, a back to basics uh, ad strategy in television is another example. Uh, we've done that with Walmart and other uh, major uh, uh, advertisers. Pushing, allowing a user to push an offer that they're interested in to their phone so that they can take action on their phone. Uh, discounted movies, extended free trials. These are all examples of executions that marketers can think about as a yet another but powerful way to reach a consumer that creates explicit value for the consumer. All of us have to think about these new angles of uh, reaching a consumer simply because of the greater empowerment that a consumer has today with their media choices. Well, in a few minutes, we'll bring in our panel of highly creative senior marketers, and we'll talk about that topic a lot more. Good. I want you to step in. This is the CMO podcast, of course, and I want you to step into the, the jobs and the minds of CMOs today. And I'd like you to hypothetically talk us through, if you were a CMO of a large brand right now, how you would approach consumer engagement strategy and tactics, knowing what you know, how will you approach it? Well, um, yeah, I mean, a couple, a couple of uh, uh, points of advice or thoughts on that. I mean, uh, one is more of a personal tip, which is, you know, challenge your own viewing habits. Um, uh, I drive my family nuts because at any point in time I'm subscribed to like 15 services and using a channel they don't recognize and, you know, just, uh, but, uh, I, I plug in competitor devices. Uh, I think it's especially important as a CMO to be experiencing the variety of ways in which consumers are experiencing television. It's very easy today to get, you know, we all want to quit work at the end of the day and watch TV the way we want to watch it, but there's an extra burden on those of us in the media business and the advertising business to try and understand how others consume. So that's that's one thing. Try apps, try devices you don't use regularly. If you're not comfortable setting it up yourself, uh, get your 12-year-old to do it or get a neighbor or a nephew to do it for you. Um, the other thing, another thing, I, another tip I, I have is just, um, you know, follow, follow the consumer. Uh, consumers are leaving the traditional pay TV package in droves. It's not a subtle trend anymore. You can't reach a third of U.S. households now with a TV investment strategy. Among younger demos, more than half of their viewership is now in streaming. And so it's just incredibly critical for us, 
marketers to reach consumers where they are. And then the last, uh, the last point of advice I'd have on, uh, on engaging users is, is what we've just discussed, which is, you know, we are headed to a world with lighter ad load, with a more empowered consumer. And so thinking about new creative executions to reach the user, uh, new ad placements within the UX, new value creation for the consumer is really critically important. I think, you know, going out 2025 timeframe, we're going to see an explosion of new creative ad units in TV, just like we've seen in desktop and mobile. And it's all with an eye towards reaching the consumer in a different and respectful way. Um, the 15 to 30 second spot are going to stay our all our collective workhorse for, for branding. It's an incredible uh, format, but there's so much more that can be done in streaming advertising. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Scott, I want to go off on a little bit of a tangent based on what you just said. You talked about how you're always experimenting, exposing yourselves to yourself to different media, different shows, different apps. Could you speak a little bit about how you spend your time? You're in a big job. You know, you have you have lots of customer and client and administrative responsibilities, communications internally, externally. What percentage of your time do you spend keeping yourself creative and immersed in the creative product? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, it's very timely because I just I just started reading the 5 a.m. club. Uh, you know, I have a, this is a book for, for folks who haven't looked at it that advocates starting your day super early, reserving an hour for yourself. Uh, and it's a mix of things. I'm not, I'm not, I'm halfway through the book. Um, but that's certainly one of my personal habits. Um, you know, as we've all moved to Zoom, uh, the meeting count on our calendars has really ticked up. And so I think to stay on top of it, starting early, pre-reading, you know, if you lead a large staff, ensuring that your staff pre-circulates material so that everybody can pre-read it so that the meeting is mostly about discussions and decisions. That's a tactic we've employed and, and has really uh, helped my productivity. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully this doesn't end when the pandemic ends, but but I, I do think that, that it has helped us all probably eat better and exercise more because we're not on a, a train or in the car for an hour or two every day. Uh, so, um, you know, I, the, other than that, uh, I would say I, I always uh, am much busier than I would like. And uh, the best thing that one can do as a leader is uh, invest in your staff. Um, you know, it's incredibly empowering to hire high powered people and it just helps you do more. Yeah. Now you're, you're real. I put you in the uh, role of a CMO a few minutes ago and you reeled off a lot of things, tips, and they were great. If you had to think about the biggest opportunity you see for CMOs at large to engage their customers better, what would that one power opportunity be? Mm. Uh, well, you know, again, I, I'll answer it from the, the frame in which I operate. Um, you know, I, I really do think that uh, TV is the most emotional media that all of us consume and produce for and, and target, depending on what part of the business you're in. And I, I do genuinely think that it will remain the case and that interactivity always on connected devices will let us do more and better for the consumer. And you know, a number of the folks on the on the call when they join us in the panel, and many many other CMOS have have worked with us in very creative ways to produce these breakout experiences um, that I think are indicative of what's possible. Um, create an emotional connection with consumers, deliver value to them, entertainment. I mean, what greater privilege privilege than to, as a marketer, play a, a 
you know, a lead supporting role in providing an awesome piece of entertainment to a consumer. And so we're always putting those kinds of pairings together, great content, great brand. Um, in television, I think that that uh, more so than has historically been possible in traditional television is a real breakout opportunity with streaming. We've had the TikTok head of global marketing on the CMO podcast recently. And honestly, that company is obviously red hot, growing like crazy. Yeah. But yeah. What, are they, what are they about? They're just about delivering content that people love, that inspire them, make them laugh, give them joy. That's their mission. And look at what's happening. Yep. Yep. It's an addictive service. I, uh, I, yep. I've had to uninstall it once or twice, (laughs) but then somehow I install it again. Yeah. But yes, yes. So I want to ask you uh, last question before going into a short lightning round. What's the most interesting customer insight you and your team have been pondering or delving into over the last nine months? Well, um, you know, one thing, that's interesting is certainly with uh, with the pandemic, with the cessation of live sports, uh, a lot of new production, we saw a really significant decline in linear viewership. Uh, and one of the questions we had was, you know, as sports comes back, uh, how much does linear consumer viewership return? Scott, explain that concept for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. So um, w- there, cord cutting accelerated when uh, live sports went off the air, uh, and we saw very significant. And Nielsen and others have uh, measured very significant declines in consumption of television via traditional pay TV services. One of the questions we were interested in is coming out of the pandemic as sports comes back to broadcast would viewership return fully? And the answer to that is no. You know, it, it bounced back, but didn't fully bounce back. So that was one of the trends that, um, you know, as a company we were interested in. What the pandemic seems to have done is really just pulled forward what consumers were already trending towards, cord cutting, shifting a big part of their TV viewership out of traditional live television into streaming. And so, um, but but it was not, we weren't sure going in uh, whether things would just go back to normal. And it's pretty clear that they they aren't. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one we'll talk about, I think, on our panel. Hey, listen, I want to do this lightning round. Uh, the first question is, you've been in, in, you've been in ad tech and entertainment for most of your career. And you worked at a number of really interesting companies before, before your nine years at Roku. How have you, you've spoken a little bit about this, but how have you evolved as a leader? over those years? How are you different now than you would have been at the beginning of your career? Uh, well, you know, I, I started my career as an engineer, uh, a fairly cynical one who thought the sort of business finance marketing end of the, of the house was like for softies. So I mean, for one, for one, you know, uh, I, I've grown to really appreciate the role of uh, speaking, inspiring, hiring, great. I mean, it's, it's 95% of what I do. So it's been a huge change for me. Um, you know, communications more generally, I, I mean, I'm saying stuff that every CMO knows in their heart and probably was born knowing, but I'm talking as a guy who has had to kind of find his way there. Um, you know, communications is, is such a central, um, strategy in influencing people, especially in a time like, um, uh, like the pandemic that we're dealing with now. And, you know, one thing I do think that Roku embodies and why I've been here so long is it's a, uh, a high empowerment culture. We tend to push decision-making down. We, we entrust with our staff significant decision-making authority. And, uh, you know, that can be unnerving for some leaders because, you know, it's a, it's a long leash, and if the if something goes wrong, it, it might go wrong in a very serious way. But but in our culture, it's enabled us to be much more agile, and has helped us to, for example, adapt to a work from home situation. And so, the ability to um, trust in my leaders, push decision making down, is a decision and a culture that 
took me as a leader a long time to come to, but is one of the most powerful lessons I've learned. And, and when you do it, uh, it's just incredibly empowering because you see the power of the people that you have on your staff. So you began as a cynical engineer and now you're a very senior leader with, with, uh, you know, evolved skills. Can you walk us through, you're probably an introvert is my guess. Yes. What my wife recently called an extroverted introvert. Okay. <laughs> That's good. I think it would describe <laughs> me as well. <laughs> Yeah. So how did you make the flip? How did you switch? I mean, that's how did you build those skills? How did you make sure you spent time on them? I mean, we, we all evolve as leaders through our careers and work on things we're not comfortable with. Uh, but there's a lot of discussion about, you know, play to your strengths. You know, don't play to your weaknesses. You This was probably not a strength when you began your career, but you're obviously very good at it now. So how did you do that? Tell us about your journey. Well, I think you've said it. You've just said it. It's uh, pushing the comfort envelope. Uh, it's doing stuff that uh, you didn't know you could do. One of the things that the, the company I ran before I joined Roku was a startup, a, a failed startup. Uh, and, you know, by most measures was a failure financially, opportunity cost, all the measures. But it, it doing early stage company work or, or if you're in a big company, projects that have high risk uh, teaches you that you can figure it out. So I often have a lot of staff earlier in their career who say, well, you're asking me to do this thing. I don't know how to do it. Well, that's your discomfort zone. That's how you grow. That's how I progressed from an engineer to a product leader. Uh, one day, uh, you know, I worked at TV Guide. One day we, we split the company up and there was nobody to run the ad sales team. I really didn't know what it meant to run an ad sales team. I was pretty sure I wasn't going to like it either. Uh but somebody had to do it and I was the in the closest seat to do it. So that's how I've progressed. I, frustratingly, it's taken me, I, I don't think I could brag. It took me 25 years to follow that arc. You know, yeah. so, some people cover that arc faster, but for me, it was just a kind of a series of, of uncomfortable stretching into new areas. And then an appreciation of the domain experts that I met as I started to do more stuff in finance, in HR, in marketing. In each case, I, I grew an appreciation for how deep that field was, how much I had to learn. And for me personally, I learned my strength was trying to synthesize across those domains. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm usually not the domain expert in any particular area. Yeah. Yeah. What are you personally most, most, most excited about in our big industry? I just think our opportunity as marketers to communicate with users gets better and better. And, um, and there's an opportunity to do it with value in a way that's respectful to the user. I'm a, I'm a big believer in advertising. You know, I think the people who reason that the world could be ad free are, you know, coastal people who have high discretionary income. But but for for the TV business, it's half of every dollar that comes in to fund the business. And so, um, you know, I, I just think that um, th there's there's a real opportunity. Most digital media have been sort of paved over by a couple of large companies, and you, you sort of have to work in in their universe according to their physics. And I think that uh, TV is this massive ecosystem that's not yet paved over and where a lot of invention can happen. And that's the thing. And where, by the way, the consumer is winning. I mean, how much awesome programming is there out there? Who'd have thunk that, you know, Apple or, you know, uh, these different services would be providing this kind of programming. So the consumer is the winner here. Um, I just think it's rare that you see a confluence of these kinds of opportunities for marketers and content creators at the kind of scale that we have in the TV, TV business. That's why I'm still doing it after, uh, after so many years. Yeah, beautiful. Scott, a great chat. Fun, interesting, informative. So thank you for being with us. Sounds good. Thank you. That was my conversation with Scott Rosenberg. And after this break, we will bring in the six CMOs to talk about their take on what we just talked about with Scott. Thank you again, Scott, for a marvelous discussion. I now want to bring in our six other speakers and participants in this unique CMO podcast. So they're going to join the conversation. And I have a creative way to bring them into this conversation so you can all get to know them. 
I'm going to give them each 30 seconds max to go around the table, our virtual table, and tell you who they are, where they work, what their role is, and one big insight from Scott's remarks that have implications for their company, their brand, their job. All of that in 30 seconds. All right. I can see them all. Their eyes are going up into the air. They're all thinking. So I'm going to start with Emily. Well, hi, everyone. I am Emily Callahan. I'm the Chief Marketing and Experience Officer for ALSAC. ALSAC is the fundraising and awareness organization for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Um, I hope everyone knows St. Jude, but St. Jude is literally changing how the world understands, treats, and defeats childhood cancer and other life-threatening diseases. ALSAC exists to raise the funds because unlike any other place on earth, um, more than 80% of the monies it takes to operate St. Jude have to be raised from the public. So I love a good audience conversation. I love one about storytelling, Scott, so I'm glad to be with you all today. Um, and it's important of the why. Why do we raise those monies? It's because no family ever receives a bill. We pay for treatment, travel, housing, and food because all a family should worry about is helping their child live. So my insight, I loved, Scott, what you said about how we have to think and act like the consumers, putting ourselves in those shoes. That's really important to us because we engage people as young as preschoolers all the way up to people making end-of-life decisions. And the second was I love thinking beyond the 30-second spot because I think there's a real hunger for storytelling. And some of our most popular streaming content has been long form. So I would love to unpack more of that later. Uh, Emily, you went more than 30 seconds, but you're St. Jude, so you can do whatever you want. All right, Jackson, see if you can do it in 30 seconds. Hey, guys, I'm Jackson Janigam, uh, VP and GM of Direct-to-Consumer for Clorox. Uh, Scott, I loved and I'm very much in line with your idea of the future of TV. I think TV has um, for a long time, uh, you know, pun intended, been hardwired to cable. And I don't think that's the case anymore. TV is a screen that sits in your bedroom or living room allows you to display messages in a much richer way. So even if people cut the cord, I think the TV will still be relevant. And if you talk about, you mentioned the top of the funnel and bottom of the funnel, I think that was so spot on. I've been a long fan, long time fan of what TV can do. And I think only Instagram and TV as of now have that potential to play both sides of the funnel. From what I'm seeing on Instagram, when I'm seeing on the flat screen in five, 10 years now, other channels will enter the, the realm, but I think Instagram and, and the TV as a screen um, are, are the best options for marketers long-term. Well done, Jackson. Quinn, let's see what you can do. Uh, Quinn O'Brien. I run marketing for the Lenovo brand globally. Um, and Scott, I thought you made a really interesting point right at the end when you said that uh, given the amount of content that's out in the world now, the consumer is the winner. I think actually also marketing marketers are the winners. Um, one of the things we've found is that the, it is so much easier now to identify really high-end content that's really specific to the message we're trying to put out there and surround it with our with our brand. And that used to be very hard to do and it's much easier now. So I thought that was a really good point. Super, okay, we're gonna to go to Dino next. Yeah, Dino Bernanke, CMO of the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, it was really interesting as an individual and a company that is all about creating content for our fans and actually bringing our fans closer to us that discussion about the amount of time people are streaming and actually, the amount of content that is being consumed and that fan engagement change that's happening. I mean, that's something that we have to keep our eye on and try to find a way to bring fans closer to the team, even though they can't be with us. And so carving out time, like you said, is probably one of the most important things that, that uh, I got to keep doing. Amy, let's hear your voice. Hi, thank you. My name is Amy Bonitatabas. I'm the, I have two roles, dual here, chief communications officer over Chase and CMO for the home lending business. And Scott, it really resonated with me, the point that you made around broadcast, you know, traditionally lacking the credentials to prove lift. As a CMO of the home lending business, we've never considered broadcast for our product line because it was too expen expensive and the ROI just wasn't there. Now with streaming, we're able to target better, certainly track to you know real success metrics. And so we've thought very differently about that channel and have some exciting plans later this year to leverage it. And last, Todd. 
everybody. Todd Kaplan. I head up uh, marketing for the Pepsi brand here in North America. And first off, Scott, uh, Roku changed my life. Uh, I got my first Roku pre-pandemic and me and my kids would not have survived without it. So just want to give you a shout awesome. out. To that. Um, but hey, my the insight that I wrote down was actually pretty similar to, uh, to Jackson. It's super simple. It was a stat you had said of a third of um, streaming right now is so a third of people are core cutters and 18 to 34, I think more than 50% of their time is spent streaming. And so just when you look at the staggering numbers, I'm just still fascinated that people still talk about this idea of television as literally just this box on a wall versus all the multitude of places. And what I'm most interested in as a, as a big consumer goods brand is the downstream implications of that with all these data points that the media buying model, the traditional agency creative client model, um, all this other stuff hasn't caught up. Everyone still talks about, you know, this as if nothing has changed and this is some niche, you know, futuristic thing, you know, we're here. Uh, and I think, you know, we're, we're doing a lot in content creation and other spaces as well, but want to get into a lot of that. And just uh, that's what really piqued my interest from your comments. Scott, I'm going to turn it back to you, the introverted engineer. You're going to have to synthesize everything you just heard. You're, you've become good at this though, I hear. And, and tell us what's your reaction to what you just heard from these six prominent senior marketing leaders? Uh, well, I'm just grateful that you tuned in and, and wrote, wrote an item or two down. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I, and I, I, but I do also uh, appreciate that uh, each of you, um, uh, you know, have a stake in this game and are excited about the transition that we're going through. And I think uh, Cleveland Browns to home lending to St. Jude's, you know, very, very different tactics and strategies. Uh, all, all of which, though, I think can be participating in uh, in what TV is becoming. So, uh, and and by the way, Jackson, I appreciated your comment. I agree with you on Instagram uh, that it, it also could be another example of a media that is both uh, branding and uh, performance oriented. So thank you all for, uh, for listening and for providing that feedback. I'm going to start our round table and we're going to really try to simulate if we're just all hanging around together and our listeners are eavesdropping. But I want to start with Todd. Pepsi is the quintessential Super Bowl brand along with Budweiser. And there's a lot of Discussion around the Super Bowl, these brands stepping out, brands stepping in. You're the halftime show. But, you know, I'd like you to talk about the role the Super Bowl has in your consumer engagement strategy, because it's not a random thing you do. It's part of a larger strategy. And given what we just talked about with Scott and what we've just heard from our panel, talk a little bit about your strategy behind what you do on the Super Bowl, Todd. Yeah, I think it's, um, well, it's actually fascinating talking about it right after that because i just talked about how hey tv no one watches anymore it's all core cutters like the one exception to that rule is when the over 100 million people tune into a single moment at time that's called the super bowl um you know there's other exceptions too but at scale and so for us as, as you pointed out jim you know at, at pepsico we've had a number of different um you know iterations within the super bowl over the years and long-standing partner of the nfl pepsi always typically has some sort of add some sort of stake in the game. And, uh, you know, for us, you know, we've made a bit of a shift this year in our, our strategy. You know, we always, what we try to get out of the Super Bowl is something we call share a voice, which is really uh, talking talk value about the brand. As a big consumer goods company, you know, people, we don't have an awareness issue. You know, people have heard of Pepsi. It's about relevance, connecting on an emotional level. And so driving the discussion on the day of in a very cluttered environment is really what we're trying to do. And what we determined for this year is that, um, you know, one of the biggest drivers for us uh, historically has been the halftime show. Um, the halftime show is actually the most viewed moment of the year and the most talked about moment of the year every single year when you think of just the stats and the amount of social chatter that happens. And we're smack dab in the middle of it, you know, with, you know, last year with JLo and Shakira, you know, we ended up becoming number one share of voice among all brands on the Super Bowl with over 43% of conversations online about brands were about Pepsi uh, as a part of those conversations. And so what we decided to do this year is rather than do the show and then also have a 30 second ad, we actually shifted our strategy to say, let's just go all in on the halftime show and actually start talking about it in January. And so we actually we partnered with uh, with The Weeknd and, you know, who's the talent this year. And we have a TV spot that started you know, or through the NFL playoffs and have really built the full 360 immersive um, platform that includes, you know, people can scan our packages at retail and get AR effects and behind the scenes content and really get closer to 
the talent in the show itself. Because you think about this moment that just literally the whole world is watching and participating in, and then no one really knows how it gets made, what's behind it, how it all works. And I think especially this year, there's an insatiable appetite for that, given it's been a year without live music. And this is the first, frankly, big live music event since last year's Super Bowl halftime show with uh, J-Lo and Shakira. So we have a lot of fun things planned as we continue, you know, uh, down the march to Super Bowl and, and beyond. But it's a, it's a, it's going to be it's going to be great. We're really excited about it. Fabulous, Todd. Hey, listen, the theme of our session today is, you know, the must do's for consumer and customer engagement as we look forward. Everybody in a business job is thinking about that. So I'd like you to, I'd like the panel to maybe, and I can see you all because we're on Zoom, raise your hand if you have a comment or a question on this, but I'd like you to maybe share with our listeners, you're all in great companies, great jobs, maybe one tip, one habit one practice, one principle, whatever it might be, on engaging consumers, people, customers today. Amy, why don't we start with you? Thanks. And Todd, um, one point that really was very interesting is that you're introducing new capabilities as you head into the Super Bowl. One of the things we saw coming out of 2020 were a lot of capabilities that existed but where consumers weren't using them. Now, when they were left with no choice because people had to get to a work from home setting, digital was the only way to engage sometimes. You saw things like QR codes. Now you can't go to a restaurant without scanning a QR code to get a menu. So I, I'll be interested to see with the Super Bowl and with other broadcast and advertising spots, more use of things like QR codes and of course, text capabilities. So I think that's um, something fun that as marketers will continue to test into this year. Hey, Emily, I want to ask you, you, you are, we, we spoke a few weeks back and by some measures, you're the most loved brand in America, right? Above Amazon, Apple, Nike. So you do a lot of good things in consumer engagement. Could you share with us how you think about that? Yeah, no, you're very kind. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> and we know that's because of the trust and support of millions I was thinking about this question and I, I would refer back to a phenomenon that happened in this past year. Um, Brian Solis, the, the global innovation evangelist at Salesforce talks about this, right? Generation in that we all across the generations and really across the globe had some simultaneous experiences that forever changed consumer behavior. And there's a ton of debate about what we're going to go back to and the next normal and all of those but I think what I would remind people of and what we're focused on, and this goes back to Scott's point of think and act like a consumer, is really knowing them. And, and to Scott's point, you can do it in a super creepy way with data, but what we're really focusing on is commonalities across generations and audiences and wherever you're consuming content. And now more than ever, people seem to be starved for a great story, a purpose, a why, something that inspires them or unites them, or it's just Todd's point, it's not just a halftime show, it's what are we talking about around the show, the story that extends and goes on and on beyond a moment? And so, you know, for us, it's really easy. We have these unbelievable stories, but every brand has a story potential behind it. And I think that's where we break through is tell stories, have emotional connections that are then tied to our consumerism, our consumption, our watching habits. And there's a lot more power for good old fashioned storytelling that we need to double down on as marketers. And to Scott's point, tons of ways and places to do it. Yeah. Quinn and Jackson, you're in two companies which have had a lot of tailwind in the pandemic, right? So I want to get both of you to speak a bit. Quinn, you first. I work for a brand that is not, um, not naturally beloved in the same way that a St. Jude's might be. So we sell, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of devices globally. So people love our products, but they don't necessarily bring that level of love to the brand. Yet since the pandemic started, we've got a very steady tracking of what people are looking for from our brand. There's been a massive spike in a desire to hear Lenovo's purpose and a desire to hear Lenovo's views on, on issues outside of our, our core business. What we think of what's going on in the world geopolitically, what we think of what's going on in the world from a climate perspective. And, and I think you're exactly right. I think there's, there's underlying effects of this pandemic that truly have led people, A, to have more time on their hands, but also B, to really look for 
um, the softer side of things more than just the, the business side. And to hear stories, even from brands like Lenovo, where traditionally it's quite a transactional effect. And, and we're, we've been shocked by the, the lift in need and desire for that from even some of the more hardened B2B audiences who look for our position on citizenship before they want to work with us. Yeah, I think that's that's a big, big, big trend coming out of the last nine months. It was there already, but it's as many things it's been accelerated. Jackson, you're a Clorox. You know, been you know, you've been in the news a lot. Supply chain products that people really need now. You've had a leadership change. Uh, so really interesting company. So could you talk to us about how you've been thinking about must dos for compelling consumer engagement over the last nine, twelve months? Yeah, so so my answer is actually not going to be about marketing. I mean, indirectly it is. I think it's two things. I think at the end of the day, and I think Clorox is the best example of this, it's product. I mean, whether you're a SaaS, whether you're a sports team, whether you're a bank, a laptop, a beverage, a nonprofit, uh, a streaming service, if your product, if the Browns don't put out a good product every Sunday, Monday, now Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays, <laughs> nights, people are not going to care. doesn't matter what Baker says or does. If Pepsi doesn't keep innovating and their core product isn't awesome and dope and that beverage of Pepsi core brand still isn't great, people aren't going to care. My Chase banking service, my basic bank service doesn't work and doesn't let me do what I need to do. People won't matter. So I think sometimes we, we lose sight of product. Clorox wipes. I mean, it's not like we have celebrities talking about us before the pandemic. Clorox is arguably one of the most irrelevant brands of everyone here, probably the most irrelevant, but our product worked. You know, we had claims to talk about COVID years ago. And at the end of the day, when people needed us, private brand trend aside, I think that's a real, real scary thing our product works when people don't trust some of those other brands, even the ones that have a great mission from a sustainability standpoint, which is sad to say, I think we're making a lot of effort there too. You need the product to work. Um, when I was at Chipotle, the only reason we survived that food crisis was the product. If our product sucked, if it was any other brand, I'd argue in QSR outside of two or three, Chipotle would not be trading at $1,300 a share today. So I think product at the end of the day, no matter marketing can make up for a great product experience. And that goes for nonprofits as well too, I think. And the second piece I'd say is that uh, you guys are talking about storytelling. You know, I'd actually argue, especially after this past year, I think one of the biggest trends we're going to see is the brand is reflected in the leadership and individuals. I think no longer can a CEO not be on LinkedIn, not be on Twitter, not be active and speaking from the heart. I think vulnerability and empathy have been missing um, in leadership at all levels and all sectors. And I think that's something that people are looking for from the brands and specifically from the board uh, room and, and from executives. That's not, and that's beyond I right? That's part of it, but it's really, are you human? Can you make mistakes? Can you be on a, on a CNN stream? I don't know if you guys saw this, but Travago CEO and have your kid come in and not push them away like that guy did two years ago. Yeah. Put them on your lap. Be like, I'm human. I'm here. Um, I have the same issues you do. I eat, sleep, shit like everyone else. I have a kid. <laughs> um, we're all human. And I think sometimes we forget that we put leaders and business executives on a pedestal and we expect them to be perfect. And we're not. None of us are. We all... <laughs> We're all going to live and die and, and none of us are immortal. And I think we have to remember that. Um, and I think sometimes it's disheartening to see. Um, and we saw in our leadership for four years, regardless of Republican and Democrat, it's, it was very obvious. And I think now more than ever, you can expect that from all brands, for-profit, non-profit, sports, CPG, whatever. I mean, I think anyone doesn't see that um, is, is fooling themselves. And that, that, that's more than marketing. Emily's clapping. And Dino, I'm going to come to you in a minute. But just a comment on Jackson, that was wonderful remarks. I spend a lot of my time measuring purpose and looking at the causalities for purpose and, and financial results. And what's really surging now is people want to believe the company is, is, doing, is the kind of company they'd like to be a part of, even if they have no aspiration to join that company. They want to think of that company as a place that they'd love to work. And that's, that's significant. And that's one of the drivers from consumers, from people of purpose and what matters to them. So uh, you're I'm just emphasizing everything you just said. Dino, what's your perspective sitting high above the stadium? If we don't show up on Sunday, you'll hear it from Clevelanders. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> uh, no, uh, along what Emily said, you know, it, it's funny. We always say we have a ton of fans that follow us, but... This year's been about following our fans and literally listening to what they want. Everybody's been talking stats and facts about our football team. Matter of fact, a lot more than usual because we're, we're performing, but we really did take a lot of care and time to do research and talk to people about what they want from us. And believe it or not, besides performance on the field, that's number one. And besides knowing the facts and stats, they want to know the stories that are happening with our football team. 
There's individuals getting COVID. How are they surviving this? What are they doing that's going to be different and interesting? And so as, as a gentleman just said about Pepsi, I think it's the smartest thing to do is behind the scenes and give extra elements that fans don't always get because we were stuck on communicating directly to them and not dialoguing you know, with them to hear what it is their intent or intentions were of what they wanted to hear from us as I'll say marketers to the, to the men and, and candidly uh, women football coaches that are on the field. And now, now we had the opportunity through COVID frankly, to rethink everything and forced candidly to innovate with intentions. Cause that's the other thing that that's, I won't say can play us is lots of innovations out there. Lots of tools are out there, but we had to be really, specific with intentions of what innovation or tools are going to help our fans get closer to the team that in an epic year for us, they couldn't necessarily be with us. And so that's, that's candidly what we uh, we've been focused on. Yeah. I want to ask the, our participants, is there a question you wanted me to ask Scott that I didn't? And if you have a question that you'd love him to. I, yeah, go ahead, Todd. Just thinking out loud here, but um. One of the things that I've been fascinated with, with the advent of um, streaming, OTT, whatever, you know, all the just all the stuff is everybody's going, you know, platform specific and um, it's increasingly difficult. I have a real in my living room, you know, we decide we want to watch a show. We don't know even where to start, which remote to pick up, where to search. How do you how does it end? <laughs> right. Where do you see it? I know we've talked about convergence. We've talked about how. Where, how does this not great consumer experience, each platform has a great experience within different realms, but the aggregate is still a horrible consumer experience to kind of get what you want on demand. It's almost like the initial Napster days with finding songs as opposed to having them more curated through iTunes. So how do you see it all coming together from your seat? And uh, just would love to understand that. Uh, well, that's a great question. I mean, I think... For one, ideally, we get down to one remote control. I don't know what else you got plugged into your television, but uh, Roku's built into TVs, too, so you can get it all in one. But uh, that has been an area of effort, so that you just pick up your Roku remote and it turns the, the third-party TV, the LG or Samsung TV on. But I think you're probably talking about content discovery, right? How do you decide what to watch? Is that yeah, right? What to watch and what platform on, so you're not going on. I'm going to check out on Amazon. I can get this for $3.99 on Apple. It's the same, but it's free on HBO. And where where to, where to go? Oh, I see. Yeah. I mean, certainly our goal as Roku is to carry, you know, barring uh, little bits and pieces, carry everything. And I think we, we are headed towards a world where a device like, like a Roku lets you reach everything. Not just everything currently being produced, but ever produced. And that's the fascinating thing about where we're at with television. It's like all content ever produced will soon be a couple clicks away. The discovery problem is a really interesting, fascinating problem. Uh, we do things like a universal search in your Roku. So if you know the show or the genre that you're looking for, you can surface it that way. There's a lot of work going on around machine learning to try and predict what you might want to watch, which apps you might want to use, what movie you might want to watch. But it's still early stage. Um, but yeah, the universe got a lot bigger. And so you as a consumer have to still navigate it. And, uh, it's a good, uh, it's a good thing to, uh, to seek. I totally understand the question. All right. I want to spend the last few minutes of our time together by going around to our six panelists with a, a quick question on one piece of advice to our listeners who are trying to be better at engaging people. And one resolution you've made for 2021 in your life that you're trying to live. And again, let's model how we began this. Be pithy, be quick, be insightful, <laughs> be funny. All of that in a few seconds. So let's see, who should we start with? Let's go with Quinn. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Scott, one thing we haven't picked up on that you talked about that I think is, is, makes for a good tip is I think one of the best ways to, to engage customers is to invest time and, and energy in your team. I think as a leader, you can only do so much directly and ensuring that you've got really good, really motivated people 
uh, working as part of your organization and that they're they're happy and safe and and feel good with what they're doing. I think that's really critical to having a good end outcome. How about a resolution, Quinn? Anything you're trying in 2021 that's new, different, unusual? Oh, I'm going to run, Jim. I'm going to run <laughs> further and faster. That's probably not what you were asking. <laughs> we'll check in with you next year. Very good. Great one. Amy, go ahead. Thank you. Scott, you mentioned follow the consumer, which I think is a, a great tip. I would just add one additional piece to that, which is listen to the consumer. In our space, you've got a fintech popping up every other day that's solving a pain point. But for someone like Chase, like Pepsi, we don't have a brand awareness issue. For us, it's how do we deepen with our existing customers? Of course, we're happy to welcome new, but how do we deepen with the half of U.S. households that we today bank in one way or the other? And um, and it's solving pain points, making things super easy so that they don't even think to go elsewhere. Dino with the Browns. Yeah, I, I have to I have to ditto that one. I think it's being fan focused first. What is it that they want? How do they want to consume it? And what can we do to provide that to them to bring them closer to the brand? And you know, I, I think the uh, the promise I'd love to make is Super Bowl next year. But outside of what happens on the football field, I think it's ruthlessly prioritized. There's so many things now that have, projects that have mounted up and innovations that we can take hold of. But what are the ones that really matter? And I think for my team, it's going to be uh, really focusing on what's going to be most important. Super. Hey, Todd at Pepsi. For me, uh, the the two things that I would say with all the media disruption and convergence, everything going on right now, the advice is that what I would do is just a, nothing beats good old-fashioned good creative. So continuing to focus less on only just where your stuff lives, but more on just what the heck are you saying as a brand and is it really good and interesting for consumers and adding value? And then I think the second thing is um, not to take the rules as written and kind of continue to push to new media models and uh, develop content creation, whatever it is, push the boundaries with the partners, your agencies, your your media partners, whoever it is to think differently, uh, to, to connect in new ways. And as far as a, um, a singular focus for myself is just to continue to just take more time, I, you know, a way to just walk and just, you know, not, not be always on. I think this Zoom culture is, is very draining. So uh, I think uh, continuing to do that, you know, like Quinn was saying, go run a couple of times. Yeah. Emily, you're next. St. Jude. I'll double down and say, I think all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we're totally flat footed in this crisis. This was not on the list of things we prepared for. And I don't want to feel that way again. So I'm spending a lot of time thinking about what's next. We're stuck at home right now. We're not going to be, what's going to really be a trend that returns what's forever changed and getting out ahead of where audiences are going if we listen well enough. And so my business resolution is I want to focus on wisdom. So that requires a lot more listening and quiet time. And I like the 5 a.m. I'm a 5 a.m. clubber, Scott, by the way, so I'm happy to give you tips, but I want to focus on wisdom and thinking a lot about not just for today, but long-term, where are we going, where do we need to be? Awesome. And Jackson, you have almost the last word. Jackson at Clorox. I would say it's a little bit of a build and not to contradict Amy and Dino, because I completely agree it's about listening to the consumer, but I would also say not to overthink it. Because I think sometimes I'm very much of the jobs uh, mentality where it's like sometimes consumers don't know what they want and you have to give it to them. So I think the balance is you have to listen to, especially in sports, but you have to be willing to take risks and take a chance. Even if the data maybe is like, ah, they want this, like, but do they really know they want that? So I think that's a hard one. There's no answer to that, but I think being okay with taking the risk, being okay with like not overthinking and being like, okay, the data is this, but fuck it, let's just try this. Like, I don't know, that's a hard one and not everyone's like jobs, but I think there's something there to that balance. I think that's so critical. And for me, I don't know, man, it's, I guess it's just trying to take things in perspective and not, um, not uh, just take things in stride and be okay with not everything getting done and, and being okay with like, it's not all perfect. Like sometimes you guys know how it is. You push your teams, you push yourself, especially now. And it's like, you know what? Fuck it. Like I'm going to play 2K at 3 PM because I deserve it. I've been working crazy times. I don't care if everyone judges me. I'm going to jump on. I'm going to green a bunch of threes. I'm going to play 2K. I'm going to feel good. So when I go to that four o'clock meeting, I'm in a much better place than if I was on Zoom from 7 AM to 4 PM. And, and I'm not going to apologize for it. So for me, it's been about and trying to then let my team have those same experience. Like you don't have to make excuses. It's fine. You're hungover because you you got drunk with your husband or a wife or partner or girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever. It's all good. We need that. Join the meetings late. Don't come in the next day because it's a crazy time right now. So I just think giving myself that that it's cool and letting my team do that and not feel guilty about these little pleasures because there aren't many of them. And the last one I'd say is I want to jump on a plane so badly into business travel. I miss business <laughs> travel more than I ever thought. I love my kids. 
I love my life, <laughs> but I miss those two days in the hotel and that whole experience from the airport, past security, uh, to the hotel. I, I miss that. So I want to get on a plane as soon as I can. Bingo. All right. Hey, Scott, last word to you. One piece of advice from everything we've been talking about relative to engagement and maybe one resolution of yours for this coming year. Yeah, I guess my uh, resolution is uh, quiet the digital distraction. I think all of us in our seats, and you guys have each said it in one way or another, we have an infinite amount of stuff we could work on coming at us from every direction, jumping from email to phone call to text to Zoom. And uh, that switching cost of switching mediums constantly is very significant. So my my resolution is uh, is trying to stay single-tracked for more than – 10, 20 minutes at a time. I think it'll increase my productivity. That's my ambition. Also running like Quinn. Mm -hmm. I had to say that in our chat here during this, it looks like Jackson, you have an invitation to the dog pound in Cleveland. And I want to press Dino here. I think you should invite us all to the dog pound next year when we're watching football together. If you could have the attitude Jackson has, you're all welcome to the dog pound. But I'll tell you, (laughs) not quiet that crowd. Oh, that's wonderful. Hey, uh, thanks to Roku for making all this happen today, uh, gathering all these people. Thank you to Scott for your wisdom uh, and your kindness. And thank you to all of you for speaking from your heart. Hugely inspiring and helpful session we just had. I really, really appreciate it. The takeaways from this one that you should think about applying to your life and your business. First, the power of simply taking time to understand, listen, and be empathetic to your consumers, your customers, to people. Every one of our panelists said that in their own way. Second takeaway, this is about you. Make time for yourself. Build in time to be renewed, stay creative, to follow trends, to read, to stay fresh. Again, every panelist spoke about that in their own way. And last, Make sure you make time now and after the pandemic to be with people from other industries and other jobs to learn more about them and their challenges and their brands. You heard that going on in this roundtable. It's so helpful to each of those people and hopefully to you. So in your lives, make sure you learn from others now and coming out of the pandemic. Those were the three takeaways from today's podcast. One takeaway I have, hey, maybe I'll think about rooting for the Cleveland Browns next year, not the Cincinnati Bengals. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.